we talked to community leaders about the COVID-19 vaccine. There is no invincibility to COVID-19. I mean, I've had people in my church die in the hospital without their loved ones. They're at the funeral home, and we have to limit it to five to 10 people in the beginning. No reflection, no community gatherings. The power to change this narrative is your choice. My hope is that people will get vaccinated. Find your vaccine at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at lesliemarshallshow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. set you free. How you doing? Happy Tuesday. I'm Leslie Marshall and I am back. I've got to say, I feel very insignificant because I was gone a week, came back a week, gone two weeks. I had two different vacations, my 25th wedding anniversary. I was blessed to go to Boston, see my family and they watched my kids while my husband and I went to Turks and Caicos. And then my family and I just went two weeks to Alaska, uh, a beautiful state. Uh, honestly, if you can ever make it there, very blessed to do some traveling. We've put off for a while because of COVID. And a lot of traveling is going to have to be put off again because of COVID. But I, I say I don't feel very important or is significant. I did have some people on Twitter and Facebook send me messages going, are you OK? Because you're usually online a lot more. I, I do have some people that are like, did you get fired? Especially because I'm a liberal. No, I just went on vacation. I am back. And you know what? Even though I love to be on vacation, who doesn't, right? Doesn't, you know, I, I don't have to cook. I don't have to make the beds and clean. Uh, I am really glad uh, to be back, and I'm even more uh, glad, happier uh, to have with us today this guest who I trust the opinion of 100%. He is Colonel Cedric Layton, and Colonel Layton is founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates. Now, they're a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. He founded it in 2010, but before that, he was in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer. He attained the rank of Colonel, hence Colonel late in the name, and he also can be seen regularly as a military analyst on CNN. Please follow him on Twitter. You will learn a lot at Cedric Layton, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N, the website, CedricLayton.com. And one of the reasons I trust this man is he has the experience, and to me, his politics, whatever they may be, are, are just left there. Colonel Layton, more than a pleasure to have you with us. Glad to have you as my first guest back from my vacation. Thank you for joining us today. I know you're very busy with a lot of TV appearances and other things going on. Thank you for taking the time. Oh, it's my pleasure, Leslie. It's always good to be with you and welcome back. Thank, thank you, Colonel, thank you. So, so many things to get in in this 30 minutes that we have together. Um, first of all, thank you for your service. And um, you know what it's like to be in a country like Afghanistan. You know what it's like, and you have been around with all of this. I know that first and foremost, you're a man, a human being, a husband, a father. I think you're a Christian. In addition to that, um, I also know that you are a vet, a military member, a colonel, a soldier. 
uh, first before any political cap uh, will go on. And I thank you for that, because I know that your opinion is based on experience and completely unbiased. And that's one of the reasons I'm really excited to talk to you today. Um, did Joe Biden and his administration botch this? And I ask that quite honestly, because I'm a Democrat and I think it's important, regardless of our party, to talk about reality and to call out our own mistakes or mishaps when they happen. But I only know what everybody else out there is telling me. I want to hear it from you because I trust your opinion on this a hundred plus percent. Well, thanks, Leslie. The I, I think you know when you look at whether things are botched or not. I, I think the the key thing to look at are are two things. On the one hand, you've got the very good part where you know over 120,000 people were moved out of Afghanistan under very difficult circumstances. So that side is a positive. The thing that really bothers me about this, though, is the fact that a lot of things that we were told uh, in Pentagon press briefings, State Department press briefings, uh, even White House press briefings, uh, were not the truth. And the reason I know that is because I'm actually connected to people in Afghanistan, people uh, who were form former interpreters for the U.S. military who are trying to get out, who have had absolutely no opportunity to go and get themselves out of the country uh, during the period that we had the aerial evacuation, and now they're still there. In fact, just a few minutes before uh, we started talking to each other, uh, these people were texting me. One of them is in an apartment building, uh, and the Taliban is in the same apartment building, uh, talking to him about all the uh, experiences the Taliban uh, had uh, on the way to uh, capturing Kabul. And uh, so this kind of thing, uh, you know, tells me that uh, ground truth is often very different from what we hear in the policy making circles here in Washington. Uh, so I would say that, uh, you know, the key thing here is that a lot of mistakes were made in the planning of this particular operation. The execution of the operation was quite good as far as it went, uh, but there's a lot more to do and uh you know, frankly, from a purely operational standpoint, uh, it ended a bit too soon, uh, in in my opinion. You never leave anybody behind on the battlefield in the military, right? And uh, we've, le we've left Americans behind. I'm going to ask an uncomfortable question, and I'm going to get crap for asking it. I actually saw somebody post this on Twitter, but I thought it was a fair question. Um, the Negotiation with the Taliban, first of all, I think even just saying that sentence is an eye roll. It's we're not there's a reason we don't negotiate with terrorists. And I mean, quite frankly, former Secretary of State Mike, Mike Pompeo, Donald Trump, his administration, they negotiated with terrorists. Uh, they did not include uh, the president of Afghanistan in those negotiations or that meeting um, at that time. So a few things. One, and, and please don't misunderstand anybody who's listening to me say this. Um, the French, some would say, are more pessimistic than we are. And they knew that the Taliban would not knew. They suspected <laughs> that this was going to happen. And so they started getting their people out uh, earlier. I have so many things to say. One, being that the former administration had a deadline of May and, and being that they knew the Biden administration wasn't going to have that much wiggle room because this was a deal that was already made and, and, and set in place. And the Taliban wasn't going to, you know, uh, you know, do, do, do a 180 on that uh, with the Biden administration. Why didn't some Americans try and get out earlier? Everybody kind didn't know what was going to happen, the way it was going to happen. Right. 
Um, but I think most people kind of knew who was going to be the new sheriff in town. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, what what really surprises me about this is the fact that uh, we were surprised, uh, you know, the fact that uh, the intelligence assessments, uh, you know, in the final, you know, they have a consensus system where you know, all the agencies get together and uh, tell the president what they think. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, the bottom line analysis of it is, you know, why didn't you see the fact that the Afghan army, the Afghan National Security Forces were nowhere near uh, the capability, process nowhere near the capability that they were supposed to have. You know, it's one thing to say they were 300,000 strong, uh, and that was the figure that's generally used by President Biden. Uh, but that 300,000 included people who had deserted, people who can't read, uh, people who, uh, you know, were sick, people who didn't show up for service, people who weren't getting paid, people who were hungry, you know, all of these things, they weren't ready to fight. And they also didn't have a guiding ideology. Uh, so one of the big problems that we have in the way we assess things in countries like Afghanistan is that we often don't look at the capabilities of our partner. Uh, and in this case, the former Afghan government of President Ghani uh, was, and, and his predecessor as well, Hamid Karzai, uh, these governments weren't uh, creating the type of institutions, the type of military that you needed to have in order to have a viable way to fight the Taliban. It's one thing for a foreign entity like the U.S. military to come in and do its best uh, to try to you know, fix things in essence in that country, but that country itself needs to want to do that. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of brave Afghans, there are a lot of brave uh, fighting people in the Afghan military uh, or in the former Afghan military, but the problem is they didn't have the right leadership, they didn't have the right structure, and the, the way in which all of these things uh, you know, came together, it was very clear that Kabul would, uh, you know, in essence, be uh, very quick to fall, a lot quicker than people suspected. And, uh, you know, the, the way of war in many of these countries is to kind of melt away. If you think you're going to be defeated, you don't necessarily stand and fight, you just disappear. And that's what they did. They disappeared. The president of Afghanistan did as well, taking a lot of money with him, right? We're going to take a quick break. We're going to be back with Colonel Cedric Layton, uh, who is not only a colonel, military analyst for CNN, has had almost 30 years as an intelligence officer in the Air Force, and now owns his own company. Uh, CedricLayton.com is the email. On Twitter, follow him at Cedric Layton, C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. I'll give you that information again. Founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, military analyst for CNN, and Colonel Cedric Layton will be back with us. We are talking Afghanistan. I'm Leslie Marshall. We are back on Leslie Marshall. He's Colonel Cedric Layton. He's founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates. Check them out. Go to CedricLayton.com and follow him on Twitter at Cedric Layton, C E D R I C. L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. He is a colonel with 26 years experience as an intelligence officer in uh, the Air Force. He is a military analyst for CNN. Thank you, uh, Colonel, for holding and uh, welcome back. Um, so much to talk about. Um, I had some people ask me off the air, Leslie, 123,000 people, like you said, uh, Colonel, a logistical feat, quite frankly, to be commended uh, by those who did this, uh, especially our military on the ground. Only in less than 6,000 of those were Americans. 
We do have a responsibility to those in Afghanistan who helped us, but one can argue, with the exception of the Taliban, Taliban supporters, that could be the whole country. Was this or any administration expected to evacuate all of, or are we still expected to evacuate all of those? Well, that's that's a really good question. I think Leslie, the uh, the short answer is we're I think expected to evacuate those who directly helped us. So that would be interpreters, people who work directly for the U.S. military as uh, contractors in one capacity or another. Uh, so many of them had exposure to some pretty sensitive stuff. Uh, you know, I know of cases where people uh, worked for the intelligence agencies. Uh, they certainly worked for the military, uh, and uh, in many cases they worked for some very senior people in our military. Uh, you know, you've got pictures of them with General McChrystal when he was the commander in Afghanistan, for example. So there, there are people who do need our help and who are absolutely in danger uh, from the Taliban. The Taliban are vicious enough that they would actually go ahead and kill people like this because they see well, we them saw, as we collab- saw a body hanging from a helicopter. We hear that today they're going door to door, right? I mean, yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Um, In your experience, when you look at like Hamas, right, for example, um, do terrorists in a sense have to change the way they operate if they become the leader, which they are now, of a nation in order, if nothing else, to get money from other countries? So that's a very interesting point because I think the short answer is yes, if they're smart. Uh, Taliban, uh, when the the Taliban took over in the late 90s in Afghanistan, they actually didn't really change the way they behaved. They were a terror organization and they stayed a terror organization when they became the leaders of uh, Afghanistan, at least the de facto leaders of that country. Uh, So when they were removed, they had an opportunity to change their their ways. Uh, You know, yes, be vicious and wild, you know, when you're a terror organization or when you're attempting to gain power. But once you gain power, uh, then, you know, if you are interested in international aid and Afghanistan absolutely needs international aid, then you have an obligation to to change mm-hmm. your ways. So this is going to be really interesting to see if they actually do that. Uh, you know, many of us are very suspicious uh, that they can actually pull this off where they change the behavior of their of their soldiers, uh, their, their foot soldiers in this case. Uh, and if they can do it, that would be a tremendous uh, feat of leadership, actually. Uh, mm-hmm. My suspicion is, is that their control is so loose among their various elements uh, that with a few exceptions, they may not be able to pull that off completely. And you'll see a lot of people, unfortunately, getting killed as a result of that. But uh, like you mentioned, the people, the Taliban going door to door to find people who collaborated with the Americans, that's happening. Uh, There are daily reports of this kind of stuff happening, and that's going to be a huge issue. Yeah, and even video footage of it. Colonel, you're a military guy. Was it a mistake to go into Afghanistan originally? No, I don't think it was, Leslie. And the reason I say that is because uh, we had to do something in the wake of 9-11. And we knew that Afghanistan was the host country uh, to al-Qaeda. So at the very least, what we should have done is go in there with a limited mission. Uh, You know, we ended up uh, going after al-Qaeda and eventually we ended up killing Osama bin Laden. All of those, I think, legitimate uh, parts of our military mission where things got a little bit... uh, 
different and perhaps you know off off uh, mark in terms of uh, the way in which we conducted business was uh, you know after we toppled the Taliban which again not a bad thing uh, you know back in 2001 uh, then we started getting into the whole nation building piece and in many cases you do need to help a country establish certain institutions or reestablish them in some cases but Afghanistan is a very unique case and I think we got into the situation where we allowed mission creep, as we call it, uh, to uh, take over. And we lost sight of the real mission uh, that we had, which was to eliminate the terror threat. It, it, would it be fair that. to say that we were giving them fish rather than teaching them to fish for too long? Yes, I think that's absolutely correct. Yeah, uh, and, you know, and would, that, would you, do you also think that our, that Iraq became a distraction as opposed to getting rid of al-Qaeda? I think it did. Uh, and I think that part of, you know, it's it's very interesting because uh, there were legitimate reasons to go after Saddam Hussein as well. However, uh, it wasn't quite sold uh, in that way. And then uh, there were a lot of questions as to how intelligence was used and what kind of intelligence was used in the run up to the Iraq war. Uh, so that, uh, you know, yeah, it, it's very clear that we had a difficulty, uh, you know, walking and chewing gum at the same time, in essence. And that, that was, uh, part of the problem you know you would think that we'd be able to handle two different conflicts uh, but uh, the real fact of the matter is is that these conflicts are in very complicated places they're very different places and uh, it's very hard to uh, you know focus on two things at once uh, right. we found out even that we should theoretically be capable of doing that Right. Former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and everybody else pretty much in the Trump administration, including the former president, um, you know, basically say, hey, look, if we had been in power, this wouldn't have happened. Uh, do you agree with that? I mean, nobody has a crystal ball there. Nobody's clairvoyant. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. Uh, nobody could foresee that the Afghanist, Afghan president would bail, that the Taliban would come to power so fast. Uh, and mm. quite frankly, like you said, uh, everybody knew, Democrat or Republican, that the Afghan military were not ready. And we've seen what they've done in the past, which is they seem to go with whoever's in charge. Mm -hmm. Right. They, they do that. And uh, the other part of it was, I think, the previous administration, the Trump administration, uh, they set the conditions for this situation to occur. You mentioned earlier the fact that the Afghan government was never part of the peace negotiations between the Taliban and the United States that uh, Secretary Pompeo and uh, Ambassador, Ambassador Khalilazad had in, in Doha. Uh, and the fact that the Afghan government wasn't a part of it, we basically acquiesced to Taliban demands that they not be a part of it, uh, that showed uh, that uh, we really didn't care about that government. And uh, as a result, uh, you know, they felt abandoned, obviously, and the Taliban felt emboldened. And uh, that uh, feeling tends to make its way down to the very, uh, very lowest levels of, of these situations. And that uh, that's, I think, part of the real issue here. Uh, they felt abandoned and the Taliban took advantage and uh, they, uh, you know, uh, they could use that uh, to take over the entire country in a very quick way. In a very quick way. One last question. We have last less than a minute. So very quickly, I've talked to military veterans on both sides of this for or against getting out we, just in like two sentences. Are you in favor of us having left Afghanistan? Yes, but we should have done it earlier and it should have been done in a much better planned, less chaotic environment. We should absolutely have left, but we should have done it in a much smoother way. Yes or no, very quickly. Do you think we'll be able to get those Americans out? 
I'm cautiously optimistic that we will. That's fair enough. Uh, Colonel, thank you so much. Colonel Cedric Layton, military analyst on CNN, 26 years in the Air Force on Twitter. We are back on Leslie Marshall, guest two in the second half of this show in this hour on the Leslie Marshall show. Um, This next guest, um, I don't know if he remembers, I think he remembers this. Um, We started actually responding to each other, retweeting each other, DMing each other on Twitter. And uh, I've always liked him. I've liked his political uh, commentary. I liked his uh, writing. And we'll talk about his contributions and why I have him on the show today. But I really loved his tweets, even though I didn't agree with him 100% of the time. And it turns out he's married to a woman I went to high school with. So then we, I don't know, I you said this kind of connection. And then I'm from like, you know, the same area, certainly uh, that, that his wife. Tom Nichols is my guest today. And it's so good to have him with us uh, on the show. He's a national political commentator. Most of you know him, especially if you follow me on Twitter. He's a columnist for USA Today. He's a contributing writer at The Atlantic, and he's also author of the popular book, The Death of Expertise. Tom is also author of the brand new book, which we're having him on to talk about today, Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. It'll be We'll be discussing that today in the interview. Like I said, you can purchase the book on Amazon.com. You can get it in hardcover, Kindle, or audiobook form. Please follow Tom on Twitter. You'll learn a lot. You'll learn about his cat as well. And uh, you'll also have a good laugh from time to time at Radio Free Tom. Uh, Tom Nichols, so good to have you here and talk to you uh, cyber face-to-face. How are you? Yeah, it's great. It's great to uh, be with you, Leslie. Yeah, good. Good to have you uh, with us. Um, you know, uh, congrats on the uh, second book, uh, our own uh, worst enemy: the assault from within on modern democracy. Um, a lot of people have talked about this book already and, you know, it's getting rave reviews from people that I follow on Twitter. So they are the only people that matter. Right. And uh, <laughs> look, um, uh, uh, you, you talk about an anti-democratic sentiment throughout our culture. You talk about responsibility that's placed upon uh, citizens themselves. So first and foremost, out of the box, why this subject matter for this book? Obviously, to write a book takes a lot of time. Uh, a, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, and a lot of passion. So why were you passionate about this topic, this subject matter? Well, because I'm passionate about democracy. And and that's not just because of the past few years. I mean, I, I, I don't want people to think this was some, you know, reaction to something that happened six months or two years or even five years ago. I began my career studying um, undemocratic systems. I was a specialist on the Soviet Union, um, which tells you how old I was that I would call it that, but that's what it was when I began. Um, and I, I really had, even when I wrote The Death of Expertise, which was about people rejecting knowledge and established knowledge and science, um, I was really concerned about the un, the anti-democratic, I won't even call it undemocratic, the anti-democratic undertone to all of it, um, which is, you know, I don't have to cooperate with other people. Everything's about me. Um, you know, everyone lies to me. I'm the only honest person in the world and, and on and on and on. And so I, uh, as as time went on, um, I started to think more about this because it's not just here in the United States that democracy is in trouble. It's all around the world. Um, Great Britain, Italy, India, Brazil, Poland, Hungary, Turkey. I mean, there's a there are a lot of democracies that are 
uh, pedaling backward. And the explanations, I wrote the book because the explanations, you know, and you and I've talked about stuff like this on Twitter and you've seen all these arguments. The explanations didn't make much sense to me. You know, people throwing around terms like economic anxiety um, or um, globalization and this kind of big, you know, as a big kind of broad brush. And so I decided to do what scholars do. I looked into it. I wanted to look at it more closely and to say, why is democracy coming apart? And the answers I came to were kind of uncomfortable. And mostly they have to do with what kind of people we're all becoming. Yeah, because, you know, one of the things that you say in your book or that, you know, you talk about is you have countries like our own that claim to value things like freedom, tolerance, uh, the rule of law. Um, and then you talk about, but but they're really not embracing freedom, tolerance, and the rule of law because they've embraced uh, an illiberal, uh, you know, group of politicians to represent them or, or platforms. Um, your your book to me, you know, I'm I'm a Democrat. I'm a little Democrat, you know, and you know that's no you know surprise. I don't hide it. You know, I'm proud of it. Um, do you think? Because I I think that your book clearly points to democracy being in trouble. Is democracy in trouble, truly? Yeah, I, I mean, I ask the question in the book, am I worrying too much? You know, I mean, because one of the great things about democracy is that we're always checking our own temperature because we can, right? I mean, in an authoritarian system, nobody ever says, you know, are we really too free? And, you know, um, but in a democracy, we we ask ourselves, are we doing this right? You know, because we're, we're the stewards of what's happening. We're the people who run the show. And... Um, I thought about that. I thought, you know, is this just another cycle of saying, oh, you know, kids these days or the government's always bad or I'm just having a bad day. I think democracy is in trouble because we are not we're, we're not arguing about policies anymore. You know, you and I come from different political traditions. You and I could argue all day about taxes and national defense or, you know, abortion or I don't know, you know, gay marriage, whatever it is. We don't have those arguments anymore. It seems to me now that the big arguments in the United States and in other places is, will we be free or will we be ruled by dictators? Um, you talked about freedom, you know, people giving lip service to freedom and tolerance and democracy. What they really mean is freedom for me, but not for thee. And uh, we have really come apart on that. It, you know, we used to accept, I mean, it used to be a badge of honor to say, I disagree with you, but I'll defend your right to say it. Now, um, we are constantly trying to squash each other. And, you know, it's, I want both sides of this. I mean, I think the American right has become an authoritarian movement, but people on the left should not sleep well. There are, there are, uh, there are authoritarian, there is an authoritarian left. It's smaller, it's less influential, but we've all become and I say this in the book, we've all become people in the grip of narcissism. We all think it's about us. We all think we're the most important uh, people. And what we think and feel is the truth and everybody else is wrong. And um, you can't sustain a democracy on this. You can't sustain a democracy in a, in, a, in a nation of squalling, narcissistic toddlers screaming at each other about how everything they want is what they should have. And um, I think you're actually seeing this happen in other countries as well. I think it's, <clears throat> to kind of cut to that chase, I think some of it's a the end of a long period of, of um, progress, of high living standards, peace, affluence. Um, and I think we've just developed super high expectations that have also allowed us to just think about ourselves all day long. When, you know, even 30, 40, 50 years ago, we had to cooperate and, and think about each other more 
and actually work together to do things. And we, you know, in the 21st century, we just don't have to do that as much. And we've withdrawn from the public sphere and we think everybody else out there is, is horrible. And again, this is not a democratic culture. You can't sustain liberal democratic institutions on that kind of a culture. You certainly can't sustain a constitution on it. When you talk about the narcissist, um, you know, you, you kind of started and read my mind um, when you talk about you see this happening in other countries, too. But it does seem worse here in the United States. Right. Don't we seem to be like the worst of the lot? I'd love you to speak to that. And also what you just talked about is that what and who, if you will, really to blame for this, for this trouble that our democracy is in? Yeah, I'm not sure that we're the worst. <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> we're, I'm not sure that we're the worst of the lot in terms of democratic backsliding. I mean, Turkey, Brazil, Poland, Hungary, th those guys are really going for the gold on backsliding on democracy. When it comes to entitlement and narcissism, which actually social psychologists have been tracking and measuring around the world for a good 30, 40 years now, um, we, we're the champs, um, in part because we're a very rich country. We're a very diverse and big country where um, we have a lot of options and leisure and we're the cultural leader of the world so we live on a planet where where we define a lot of the culture movies music etc that goes on in a big part of the globe um so yeah in that sense we're the champs and i in the book i argue this begins sometime in the early 1970s with the establishment and you're going to love this leslie because it's a ding on capitalism with the capitalist monetization of a permanent youth culture where we just decide that, you know, a culture uh, of unseriousness at play um, is the kind of permanent state of America. And I think th that's the other word I would use about this is how utterly unserious we have become about politics. I mean, when people were, there were people who didn't agree with what Donald Trump stood for, but they voted for him and they admitted it saying, you know, I just wanna see what happens. I think it'd just be funny. And you see this happen in other countries. Italy elected a party led by a comedian. The Ukrainians elected an actual comedian who played a president on TV and they made him president. Um, <clears throat> you know, Boris Johnson became prime minister of Britain. Um, he's not a comedian, but might as well be. Um, there is really just this lack of seriousness about the consequences of voting for clowns and TV stars and reality goofballs because people just want life to be interesting. And in the book, I point out that Eric Hoffer, a you know, writer from 70 years ago said, this is when you should really worry. When everybody's, not when people are poor, not when people are you know, really suffering, but when they're bored. And that that's what's happened. I live in California, September 14th. We might end up with somebody I know, a talk show host with no right. experience running our state in the midst of a pandemic. Tom Nichols is our guest. We'll be back with him and you right after this. I'm Leslie Marshall. Don't go away. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at lesliemarshallshow.com. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. 
We are back on Local Marshall. Our guest is Tom Nichols, national political commentator, columnist for USA Today, contributing writer at The Atlantic, and author of the book, The Death of Expertise, also author of a brand new book we're talking about, Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy. Uh, and you can get it on Amazon, hardcover, Kindle, audiobook. Follow Tom on Twitter. That's where he and I originally met. Learn a lot from him. Get some laughs as well at Radio Free Tom. Tom, thank you for holding. Um, well, welcome back. Uh, yeah, so much to talk about with this. Um, you Would you say that one of the reasons we have this unchecked narcissism that, you know, you referred to and, and you speak about in the book, you write about in the book, um, do you think that all this social media, TikTok and all of that plays into it? Because, you know, now we can all be stars, at least in our own minds, you know, by uh, posting a video. And I hear my kids who are 13 and 14 talk about how many likes they get about something, uh, you know, elevating their own ego and their own status in in, in the world. Um, d- does that play into this unchecked narcissism? Oh, yeah. I mean, they put it all on steroids. Um, you know, the first there was a the landmark book on this was called The Culture of Narcissism. And it'll shock people to find out that it was written by a <clears throat> um, by Christopher Lash in 1979. And he said, you know, we're becoming a performative culture. We're becoming a culture that doesn't think anything's real unless we do it in front of other people and get applauded for it. He wrote that before Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, now imagine that problem that that was already evident to people 42 years ago. And then add in the ability, um, you know, to to do things in public with zero impulse control. Because I think a lot of this you know, a lot of things that people put on the internet are things that if they had taken 10 more minutes to think about it, they wouldn't have done. Um, but to take that that notion that we are this, you know, performative culture that constantly does things for, you know, applause and, and um, approval, and then to add in social media, and, and this actually affects our politics because social media and Facebook, and, the, and I say, as I point out in the book, the people at Facebook admit this, appeals to the most divisive and and often negative part of our brain. And you know, you and I have big social media presence. We've done it. We've been part of it. We've snapped at people or snarked and, you know, had hot takes where we just want to say something growly, you know. Um, But um, this is one of the reasons I think it's important to write rather than, uh, you know, and to and to talk and to discuss and do what we're doing now. Uh, But yeah, this this problem predates social media. But social media, I, I, I keep telling people, don't blame social media. It just was added to a stew that was already boiling, that was already ready to, to kind of happen. You talk about ordinary people, ordinary citizens who are laden with grievances, joining forces with political entrepreneurs, and that those political types thrive on the creation of rage uh, rather than what you're speaking of. And you, you had said before the break, which is, you know, I don't agree with you, but I'll you know, fight for your right to disagree with me, you know, and to have right. The, the right to say it, um, rather than encouraging a civic virtue, a democratic uh, cooperation. So the political players left and right um, are are bleeding this, aren't they? Uh, yeah, and they're, they're aiming at different audiences. And again, I, I'm going to throw most of the blame for this on the right, um, in part because they're dealing with an aging population. You see this around the world, especially with the fearful appear, appeals to nostalgia that really hit people that are closer to my age. I mean, I'm I, I'm 60, um, 
and the people that are most likely to be these kind of the the cornerstone of an illiberal movement are people that are over 50. They're actually middle class. They're not poor. This is another important finding in the book. These are not, this is not some revolt of, you know, the forgotten men and the empty towns. These are middle class. These are people with boats, you know, who are claiming that democracy screwed them. Um, Are, Are they also white? And and I was going to get there, right? And there's a huge amount of racial anxiety involved here that these are, you know, middle class, older white people who are being fed this diet of just fear inducing panic all day long from cable and talk radio and right wing websites saying, you know, you're going to be destroyed. You're going to be overcome. You know, there's caravans coming for your family. And, um, you know, it, it, to, to a lesser extent, and I, I rely here on other people on the left because who are more conversant with the left than I am, but people like Mark Lilla who point out that, you know, the, a smaller, but nonetheless pernicious movement on the left are people who are all about the kind of grievance and identity politics Lilla really um, aggravated a lot of people when he wrote some years ago that this is the equivalent of Reaganism, but for lefties, that it's kind of the touchstone thing, you know, that gives everybody a sense of tribal identity. Um, But that 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 constant fear mongering, this sense that everyone is out to get you, it's perfect because it plays as well into that pre-existing narcissism. Of course, I'm of course, everybody's out to get me because I'm the most important person in the world. And, <laughs> and you know, I'm not just an ordinary person with a family and a dog and a kid and, you know, and, and a job. Um, I am somebody that, you know, um, Kamala Harris or, um, uh, you know, Bill Barr, they sit around all day thinking about how to get me. And uh, and this this has made us psychotic. I mean, Eric Hoffer talked about mass psychosis settling in when a middle class gets kind of bored and affluent and uh, inward looking. And you see it now, you see it in the pandemic with people believing, you know, that thousands of people are part of this giant conspiracy. And because in the end, it makes life interesting. And that's what we, in a kind of, um, in a kind of bored affluent society, we demand that life be really interesting every day. And if that means that we have to believe in absolute crazy stuff, and then so be it. And I think we need to recover a certain amount of stoicism and maturity and adulthood to say, you know, life is just life. You get up, you go to work, you you take care, you say hello to your spouse, you take care of your kids, you pet your dog. You don't have to be Tony Stark. You don't have to be, you know, uh, Thor every day. You know, sometimes the the best life is the one where you're just getting up and going to work and um, you know, mowing your lawn and living a normal life. And I think people have really just don't have any tolerance for that anymore. No, I agree with you, but you're going to be in trouble because you mentioned dog twice, dude. You did not mention cat. And I know well, the cat I, in your house is, is queen. Okay. <laughs> I have to give shout outs to dogs because I am clearly an agent of, of big cat um, and in the pocket of big cat because my cat pretty much is selling more books than I am. Yeah, uh, I'm just saying, like, them. anybody who follows you online, Tom, knows your cat. The fact yeah, that I am referencing. She, she's really the marketing genius here because she's prettier than I am and has a nicer personality, so. <laughs> she definitely has a lot of followers. Um, uh, you, you know, when we talk about uh, democracies and you know ending up like this, including our own, um, where it's a dire state of affairs. So what do we as a nation and, and other nations, other democracies do about it? Yeah, I didn't want to. I, I I was actually blocked on the book for a while because I was trying not to end 
on too dark a note, but I, I'm going to say that we are headed through a very dark time, and I think we we have a dark tunnel lying ahead of us. My <clears throat> excuse me. My big concern is that the people who have really climbed into the tree of a liberalism, the people who think that you know um, the election was stolen, that the Constitution is being subverted, that you know there are cabals of blood drinking pedophiles and all that stuff. They're not coming back. They're not coming out of that tree. Um, and, and so you're just going to have to outvote them until the rest of the country, you know, can maintain itself long enough um, for this 30, I, I would say somewhere between 30 and 40 percent of the country that's kind of, you know, out on this limb, um, uh, you know, is just defeated electorally. But my big concern is that in doing so, that we all become so panicky that we start destroying the foundations of our own democracy and that we can't recover from that. And that's what, what worries me. We can't burn down everything while trying to, you know, we can't destroy the village to save it. And so I think we all have to be calm, stoic, be a good example to each other, be the example you want to set as a citizen, uh, rather than thinking that you're going to be a warrior that's going to defeat everybody in battle every day. You know, uh, you've read my mind because there were two things I was going to ask you, and I'm put because of time going to, you know, merge them into one. January 6th, uh, one could argue, was trying to burn the village down uh, to save it. And uh, Madison uh, Cawthorn uh, at a North Carolina GOP event, Republican congressman, uh, said that uh, President Biden was not elected fairly, that there may be bloodshed if elections continue to be rigged. He, others like, uh, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Goetz have called January 6th rioters political hostages. There are people agreeing with uh, them now, some you've referred to as an a-hole. And, uh, uh, you know, did, you know d did all these factors in your book in, in, in your new book that we're talking about today, lead to this type of stuff? You know, uh, January 6th happened just as I was gonna put the manuscript in and I had to pull it back to say, this is what I'm talking about. This is the thing I was warning about. January 6th was a perfect example of what happens when unserious, narcissistic, middle-class, affluent, bored people decide that they have to have a crusade. And they go to the Capitol to do violence while literally posting it on Instagram and then leaving ads like, and also I'm a really good realtor and I'll sell your house when I get back from burning the cap. <laughs> I mean, this is Love this it. is insane. And people like Cawthorn, they are charlatans, they are grifters, they are people, they are, you know, they don't really care about the seriousness of what they're saying. The consequences of that kind of violence will fall on other people. What they want is to keep going to Congress. They like being in Congress and they're going to say anything they have to say to keep being in Washington. And people need to understand that. They need to understand that they are being conned here and being uh, sold a, a constant infusion of addictive rage. And they need to step back from it and say, do I really wanna have members of Congress talking about violence? That's insane. That is not the American way. That is that is not just illiberal, it is un-American. And the people doing it ought to be ashamed of themselves. Amen, preach it. I quoted you yesterday when I was recording the Brett Baer podcast, and I said, as my friend Tom Nichols said on Twitter, don't worry about criticizing Joe Biden on Afghanistan. No Republican's going to say, hey, I was going to vote for Biden except for that cobble thing. So I wanted to give you some credit here, too. You can purchase Tom's book, Our Own Worst Enemy, The Assault from Within on Modern Democracy on Amazon. If you get hardcover, Kindle, or audiobook form, Please follow him on Twitter. You'll learn more about Stella the Cat at Radio Free Tom. 
I'm Recycling Raccoon Gladys Glass. And I'm Precious Metal. And this is a Michigan Recycling Update. The Metal Edition. So how is Michigan doing? Michigan is jamming at Recycling Metal Gladys. They just have to keep making sure those cans and containers are always rinsed out and empty. The heavy-duty stuff like scrap metal and construction items like nails typically need to be taken back to a specialty recycling location. Whether you recycle curbside or at a drop-off site, learn the rules of recycling at RecyclingRaccoons.org. We talked to community leaders about the COVID-19 vaccine. There is no invincibility to COVID-19. I mean, I've had people in my church die in the hospital without their loved ones. They're at the funeral home, and we have to limit it to five to 10 people in the beginning. No reflection, no community gatherings. The power to change this narrative is your choice. My hope is that people will get vaccinated. Find your vaccine at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services.